for the most part, the hero section, the top section of the website before it's, the user has to scroll down, yep. the above the fold section, most users do not go beyond the hero section on a homepage. So the hero section is absolutely your prime piece of real estate to yeah. capture the user. And as a result, the message has to be salient. It has to be very clear. It has to be compelling. It has to contain your value proposition. It has to explain what your product or service is. And it has to have benefit. And mm. that's an awful lot to pack into a hero section. Yeah, it but is. most companies do not do it very well. They assume that users know what the product or service is and they offer no background whatsoever on what the product or service is. And they have some cutesy phrase like, you know, whatever it is, that doesn't mean anything to the user. And then they expect the user to convert and wonder why conversions are low. <laughs> hey folks, it's Richard here from the Experiment Nation podcast. Uh, today I've got a special guest. It's uh, Deepa Romali from Guess the Test, uh, convert experts, and she's an adjunct professor at the Queen's University. Um, Deepa's got a uh, background in Marvel Masters from Queen's University, uh, specializing in eye tracking technology and behavioral psychology. So she's got really deep insights that can help us out with um, qualitative data. Um, and yeah, it's really good to have her on the show. Hi, um, hi Deepa. Hi there. Yeah, it's great to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. So yeah, you've got an interesting background. I think in particular, I've seen you on your segments on heat maps and recordings. So your background and knowledge in eye tracking and the human psychology with, you know, how, how they interact with websites and so forth and how that plays into, you know, things like um, heat maps and recordings and maybe even remote user tests. And I think it's, it's definitely uh, an advantageous thing. And I think our audiences um, would really enjoy um, listening to, to you know to your background experiences. So, yeah, could you could you um, tell our audience uh, our audience a bit more about um, you, you, your academic background and how you you know how you why you chose your degree, how you get into that, and um, how you found the link from um, finishing your degree to getting into CRO and so forth. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So my story actually stems a long time ago. Back mm. to when I was in grade school. Mm. I was in about grade four or so. And we had to choose a science experiment. And we talked all about a hypothesis and formulating a hypothesis. And then we had to choose a topic to settle on. And while other kids were choosing, you know, what kind of soil is most absorbent or what kind of yep. diapers absorb the most apple juice, yep. I was really interested in seeing what people saw first when I cut out different colors and different shapes of construction paper and posted mm. them on a board. And I would ask people, I'd say, what do you see first? And that's what I was interested in learning about. And fast forward many years later and a very circuitous route, I ended up pursuing my master's with a specialization in eye tracking technology, which is not all that far off from heat maps. Mm. And I did two pretty major projects in eye tracking technology, where I looked at what people saw first in advertisements. Yep. They were um, print ads, but they were on a digital screen. And I found really interesting findings. Um, I had one project that looked at, do people recall positive or negative messages more? And what do people pay more attention to? And I actually found that people initially pay more attention to negative messages 
And then as they start to cognitively process that negative message, they sort of reject it and they don't actually recall it as well as a positive message. So positive message, or I use a theory called message framing, gain frame messages are actually better for getting people to recall and remember the message later. So that was one really interesting finding. And Mm -hmm. I also looked at, do people pay more attention to a text-only ad, an image text ad like what we see in most ads, or an image-only ad? And interestingly, this might shape you know, marketers, advertisement strategies in the future. Yeah. People actually pay more attention to a text only ad. They uh, take more time to read it and they recall it better. So despite all those ads that we see out there that are text and image, text only actually maybe is the better way to go if that text message really resonates with people. So that was my master's. When I graduated from my master's, I thought for sure I would go into the world and bring eye tracking to the world. But (laughs) I live in Canada, and I live in Ottawa, Canada. For those of you who don't know, it's a government town. It's not very progressive. Uh, (laughs) It's about 20 years. Very conservative. And technology is about 20 years behind the rest of the world. So trying to bring eye tracking technology to Ottawa (laughs) was a very tough sell. People were like, what's eye tracking technology? (laughs) Why do I need this? Are you spying on us? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it was it was very challenging, but what ended up happening is I got a job doing user experience testing with a local firm that served government clients, Government of Canada clients, and yeah. so I, I got really great experience learning about how users use websites, and it was very related to eye tracking technology. It was just a different facet of it. As part of a training exercise for the user experience company, mm-hmm. one of the guys told me, he said, there's the site out there, it's called Witch Test One. It's a site on A-B testing. Go and subscribe to it. That's part of your training exercise. Follow one. the weekly tests. And so I subscribed to Witch Test One and I was like, yep. oh, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. Weekly A-B tests and you get to guess the test. And uh, I followed it for many, many years. And eventually they ended up having a job posting They were looking for a content writer and a content marketer, and it fit my skill set perfectly. So I applied, I ended up getting the job, and ended up getting on with Witch Test One. Witch Test One, if you haven't heard of it, is sort of like the precursor to the company I founded, Guess the Test. And uh, it was full of hundreds of A-B test case studies, looking at what worked with A-B testing. It was very successful. It was acquired by a company out of New York, rebranded, and unfortunately, it just didn't work out. And they ended Mm. up dissolving the company completely and taking down hundreds of case studies that I had written and access to case studies dating back from 2009. So this incredible history of case study knowledge. And having been a key content creator there, people were coming to me and saying, Deborah, Mm. what happened? I relied on these case studies for (laughs) my teaching material or for validating test ideas. What am I going to do now? I thought, okay, well, with this gone, this is my chance to independently recreate which just one and, Mm. you know, make it even better than it was before. So I independently created Guess the Test and it's been going strong ever since, since 2018. So about five years now. 
And it's a similar model to which does one. Mm. Um, over time, I've developed it to really make it my own. I've added in a test trustworthiness section, which was always oh. a criticism of which test one because people would say, these lists are totally exaggerated. How can I believe anything? And so yeah. now with each test, I evaluate, is this lift actually something that you can rely on? Is it trustworthy and why or why not? And then there's also a sort of in-depth analysis where it examines what about this test worked and why did it work and how can you apply this to your own testing practice? That's, that's, there's that's, also yeah. tons of articles and resources as well. And I, I I've, sort of, I've browsed the site. It's 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 very it's pretty cool. I, I like the interactive um, element of it. I think that that adds a, kind of a gamified approach to, um, you know, to 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 CRO and AB testing because, you know, you see these case studies and um, it's just just read about it and you're like, okay, whatever. But I think right. um, adding the interactive element of like, okay, okay, maybe I'll go for that test. Maybe I'll vote for that test because, you know, based on this um, heuristic or based on this psychological principle and sometimes um, even, on, even on some of your, your tests that you've, you've featured, it's, um, you know, we, we bring our own biases into, 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 into tests. It's impossible to be purely objective. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, even I've been kind of um, – kind of dumbfounded by some of the results of, of tests. And, some of the um, results are yeah. very surprising. And that oh, is yeah. exactly why we test is you mm. never really do know what's going to win until you test. Mm. Mm. So it's very, it's very humbling. And, and, um, but yeah, the, about the, um, I think you did, you say, you say that you added in a, um, element where there's a probability aspect or a, a, a confidence interval. Um, yeah, so I call it aspect. a test trustworthiness section. So mm. I evaluate how trustworthy is this test result. So, for example, let's say a company, most of the case studies are submitted to me by companies. Yep. And let's say a company reports a 237% uplift. Is that actually I'm a always like, test result? <laughs> yeah, I'm always like, you know, I go read these reports, like, you know, this brought in like $300 million and I'm like, I'm always so dubious about these. Um, right. Well, these you should ones. be. <laughs> and basically <laughs> what I've learned over time is yeah. the bigger and the more um, wow factor the test result is, the less trustworthy it actually is. So anything that looks unusual and surprising probably is and therefore can't really be trusted that's twyman's law twyman's law yeah i was going to say that anything i think um was it ron kahavi that said yeah, yeah I've, I've heard him talk about it. like it maybe you like you know think okay you gotta sift through the data don't accept any bs um you just gotta be like very stringent like even from like it's twyman's law it's taught myself like you know to not fully rely on um you know, the testing tools results like optimize or whatever. Cause, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes when I go in GA, it's not like it's, it's like optimizing might say, Hey, this, you know, this has reached stats. So, you know, I'll go in GA and it's, you know, the numbers aren't always adding up so much. So I'm, exactly. I'm always like sifting through things and segmenting data and, mm -hmm. you know, between mobile and desktop and, and so forth. And for sure. Um, yeah. This is Romo Santiago from Experiment Nation. Every week we share interviews with and conference sessions by our favorite conversion rate optimizers from around the world. So if you like this video, smash that like button and consider subscribing. It helps us a bunch. Now back to the episode. Um, oh, just 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 on a point on your background, um, you talked about um, kids' experiences with was it negative? Um, was it kids or the sorry the the other um, experience were 
I think it was like a negative negativity bias aspect to testing. Is that is that is that what you're alluding to? Yeah. Um, so in my masters, I specialized in a theoretical framework called message framing. Yeah. And a message can be framed in a loss framed or a gain framed way. Yeah. So yeah. a loss framed is essentially spinning the message in a negative way, and yeah. a gain framed is basically put it in a positive way. And uh, it's typically used in health behavior prevention or promotion when you want to get somebody to take action, for example, for cancer screening or to stop smoking. You can frame it in a gain or a loss frame way to stress the benefits of taking preventative action or to talk about the risks of not taking action. Okay. Um, it's also it, it actually stems from behavioral economics, and it was examined by Tversky and Kahneman in a gambling yes. and economic context. And people will risk more if they feel like they have more to gain, mm. even though they actually may end up losing more. And so it's all about mindset and loss aversion and yes, loss aversion. what people feel they have to gain. In saying so, that, um, in saying that, do you think that we um, in developing tests that say I've got a, I'm testing, let's just say, you know, just just for our audiences who are listening, um, let's say we're testing pricing um, that we should um, sort of bias towards loss aversion type tests where, um, you know, um, let's say it's an add to cart ecom. Um, you know, you got those timers that I hate, but you know, you got the timer that's like ten minutes or five minutes these days. Yeah. In the checkout, that's would you would you bias towards testing? In, 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 um, so urgency in that way, and or? scarcity are definitely powerful mm. motivators that can get mm. people to convert. They have to be used in a real context. Yeah. People, I think, have become quite skeptical of, I for have. example, countdown timers yeah. or hurry, there's only five items left in stock. Oh, yeah. And then they go back to the site the next day and there's still <laughs> just five items left in stock. You know what so, I do? I go incognito. Yeah. <laughs> I go incognito. I'm like, no, nah, you're telling VVS. I mean, it, goes, right. it goes back up to 10 seconds. And <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, no, there's, there's not five items. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of scams and manipulation out there. And yeah. I think a lot of users have become savvy to that over time. I think all of these tactics used to work better several years ago before yeah. they were kind of known by the average user. But mm. they still can motivate people. And they're powerful motivators because urgency and scarcity are biologically built into us we have a protective mechanism from when yeah. we were you know cavemen with lizard brains yeah. to try and find food or the berries on the tree and get the last berries because that's what we needed in order to eat and we still have that mindset now it helps us survive and mm. so when we see five items left in store or hurry <laughs> this deal will only last for another 24 hours it does to some extent you know trick our brain into going okay i have to act now, I've got, I've now got, you can i mean even in for me as an experienced marketer like i mean i'm just like even though i get a bit sort of um tuned out by this stuff and even affect it does still affect me because i'm like okay there's a special on okay they've only got a few left items left yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> you know it's just i don't know like because because i'm like okay maybe they are maybe they are being true and um maybe they are honest there they've only got like a few items left and i'm just like okay, right. I've, got to, I've got to get this discount now otherwise i'll miss out yeah. so it, it's it's uh, it's amazing how um we're just hardwired um maybe it's that reptilian brain aspect of us to 
survive and it's a preservation sort of mindset of okay i've got i've got to do this to preserve the status quo or to exactly. get what i want to survive um just another yeah. point on the um uh text versus images um because um because i'm thinking in terms of uh you know i've experimented with um uh, you know so let's just say an econ website um google text ads versus um um, Google Shopping. Um, right. Just let me play as devil, devil's advocate here. So I found that I got more conversions at a lower CPA um, with Google Shopping than, okay. and a lower CPC with Google okay. Shopping than uh, Google Text Ads okay. in, for, for me and specifically for e-com. So um, would you say that your research is more generalized than spe- as opposed to sp- specific? Yeah, so it was looking yeah. specifically at print ads as opposed yeah. to like, you know, web-based ads or yeah. um, Google ads. And it was basically <clears throat> what do people attend to more? So attention, attend to is attention. What are you paying more attention to? And yeah. in the eye tracking research I did, that was measured by eye fixations. So how long somebody is staring or looking at the screen and actually concentrating on the screen. Yeah. Eye fixations are a metric of dwell time. So how long somebody is dwelling or looking at the screen. And then I also looked at attention and recall of the advertisement. So how much you were able to remember once you saw it so it's pretty well known that you can process images much quicker than you can text text requires visual you know you have to process it visually and then internalize it to understand it there's cognition that has to take place and that's slower than just being able to immediately see something so it's not surprising that people would pay more attention to text because you need to do that in order to cognitively process it but in order to recall it you actually need to start to have it go through your brain and have you process it and people process the text-based ads more because they were attending to them more they were paying attention to them more so would you say that um you know based on say the Kahneman's you know Kahneman's principles is a text is text more system two and then uh, images are more system one based because I would say so yes yeah I mean yeah because an image is like you know you just you're not thinking mm-hmm. that much cognitively generally speaking like it's no. more intuitive whereas text you've actually got to read the damn thing and understand it <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um just insane just 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 insane that you because you did it you've did it uh you did this test um on print would you say that to uh follow up in our digital age that you could you like if you had your time if you had time, you would follow it up in the digital context. Um, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much that you can do with eye tracking. <clears throat> eye tracking never really fully caught on. So mm. I'm dating myself now, but when I did eye tracking, it was in 2007. I did wow. my master's. So quite a while ago now. And machines had evolved from several years beforehand you actually needed to rest your head in a chin strap and sit there as still as you possibly could and look at the ad uh, or the screen when i did it it was a screen a standalone screen that sent an infrared signal into your pupil and then that bounced off and was able to map the xy coordinate 
on the screen to see where the eye was looking, but you still oh. had to be very still. You couldn't move your head around. <laughs> so, uh, hang on, a light, because I know I, I asked this out of interest because my, my wife has done one of those. You know how you, you can sign up for these research companies and they give you like a voucher if you come into their studio and do right. research for whatever. I think she did it. Um, yeah, she she was, she and this is to help our audiences out because um, she was looking at something on the screen. I don't know what it was, but she was like, okay, how do they know where my eyeball is mm-hmm. up here or down here? And, and so you, just to clarify, you're saying that there's some laser – yeah, it's actually... an infrared signal. At least that was, you know, the technology yeah. I was using. It was a Toby eye tracking machine. Mm. It may have evolved since then, but I think it's still fairly similar. And there definitely still is eye trackers out there. And devices like the Microsoft Connect, Kinetic, I think it is. Yeah. Um, and Toby still exists as a company, and they have these very sleek eye trackers now. They're about the size of a thick ruler, and they're essentially a webcam much less expensive than the $25,000 screens that I was using (laughs) (laughs) back in the day. Um, But I I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe the technology is still the same. So it's an infrared um, signal that is sent out from the camera, bounces off your eye and back to the camera where the XY coordinate on the screen is mapped. So it's basically like you can tell, okay, pixel you know, 863 right there in the middle of the screen. That's the XY coordinate where it is, and that's where the person is looking. And from my tracking, you know, it's evolved even more. There's now face tracking. There's yeah. emotion tracking to see how people are looking and feeling and expressing, emoting their faces. So it's gone in a really interesting direction. But from an experimentation industry, what really stemmed out of eye tracking that I think is really fascinating is heat mm. mapping. Um, there's all sorts of heat mapping tools now and I find it invaluable in doing conversion rate optimization and A-B testing and establishing really data-driven hypotheses because while you can look at analytics data and form a sense of what users are doing and how they're behaving on your site you don't really know because you don't have that visual picture and I'm biased I'm very visually oriented but as soon as I see heat mapping data I go oh okay that's exactly what's happening there that button's being clicked or not clicked Mm. people are scrolling down the page or not scrolling down the page and you can really start to paint a very detailed picture of how users are behaving and what they're doing or potentially not doing on the site and what needs to be optimized as a result what's what's the kind of um pros and cons of heat maps uh you know doing remotely at home versus in-person testing i think the pros and cons are pretty obvious Mm. in a laboratory setting people don't necessarily act how they would in real life when they're actually browsing so Mm. you don't get a very true sense of how users are actually behaving whereas when they're in their natural environment on a desktop screen or even on a mobile screen that's more likely how they're behaving because they don't feel like they're being watched. So as much as possible in a natural environment is definitely the way to go. People definitely change what they say and what they do as soon as they feel like they're being monitored. And I know that firsthand from user experience studies. I would run these Government of Canada user experience tests. And if you've ever been on a Government of Canada site, they're atrociously awful. Yeah. <laughs> you can't all, find any information. All government websites are pretty crap, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
so and and these are you know important services that are offered like the Canada Revenue Agency deals with taxes and um, employment insurance deals with getting money if you've been laid off your job like these are services that people need and they need to be able to navigate the website but they're just buried in bureaucracy basically so I would run user experience tests and I would ask people at the end of the test mm. first of all I should back up and say they're job would be to complete a top task, which would be to find a certain aspect on the site or navigate to an important page, that kind of thing. Most of the time, people would not be able to successfully complete the task, at least not within the allowed amount of time. Mm -hmm. And if they did, they would really kind of stumble around and, you know, not get to the right place very efficiently. And at the end of the study, I would often ask people, can you give me any feedback? What did you think? And yeah. people would say, oh, it was great. The site was really easy to navigate. It was very clear. <laughs> and it was because they thought that that's what I wanted to hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I really learned from that that people do not say what they mean. And there's a top yeah. UX researcher. His name is Jerry McGovern. And he mm. gave a really, I think, precious example of that. Yeah. And he gave an example of he worked with an airline company and the airline company asked people, what do you want on this airline? What would make you happy? And people said, well, we want fresh fruits and vegetables and we want to eat healthy. Mm. And so the airline spent all this money acquiring fresh fruits and vegetables and trying yeah. to keep them fresh on an airline, on an airplane. And Every time people would gravitate towards the candy and the chocolate bars and all the unhealthy food, and they'd have all these extra fruits and vegetables sitting around rotting. And the airline went, what's going on here? People told us they want fresh fruits and vegetables, and yet (laughs) nobody's eating them. They're all eating the junk food. What is happening? And they realized people say one thing and they act another way. Mm. And I think that's a really important UX principle to keep in mind. Mm. Mm. And that's why, in my opinion, user experience testing is not nearly as powerful as A-B testing or even heat mapping, where a researcher doesn't get in the way. It's in an unmediated environment, and users are behaving naturally as they would without any prompting or without any kind of swaying the user in one specific direction. So Mm. when users say something, they more often tend to meet it because they're not saying it to an individual. They're behaving in a certain way that is in line with how they actually feel. I might have have missed it, but what's the main advantage of in-person versus heat maps? Because in-person is still done by, you know, firms that can afford it. So Yeah, it's still a valuable exercise. I think the main advantage, at least in my experience, is that you can really target and pinpoint questions to a user and you can observe their you know, browsing journey or completion of top tasks. And then you can ask them, okay, well, what did you find confusing there? Why did you end up going there? And you can do it in real time and get really valuable feedback. And just forming that personal connection with your user, you start to understand your audience a little bit more if, you know, the user is part of your cohort or demographic. And you get a sense of, who your users are and why they're behaving the way they do in a way that's much less anonymous than if it was, you know, just in a removed setting. Let's just say, you you know, you're, you've got this cohort that needs to be, uh, you know, female between 20 and 40 and blah, blah, blah. 
and you can talk and have a conversation with them in a more in a very in-depth way and really understand those user personas a lot better than a heat mm-hmm. map which obviously doesn't segment by personas because you, you can't yeah, do that. You got you it. So it's that. really it's the voice of the customer. You're actually mm. literally speaking with the customer and you're hearing from them, you're getting their personal experiences. People will often start to tell you their stories or, you know, what motivates them in certain ways and you can really dig in and have a conversation and establish a personal relationship mm. with typically a smaller subset of people a much smaller group so it becomes a more qualitative exercise yeah. but that can be really valuable in getting to know your audience and establishing that relationship with them that you can't really do in an anonymous way when it's larger scale and removed from a one-on-one setting mm. would you say that the way to get around that sort of downside of heat maps where it's very anonymous is to integrate heat maps uh, and recordings with also user polls in specific key segments of the user journeys yeah i, I think you know in in my experience and opinion the more data points that you can have and blend together the better so a lot of people sit in you know a CRO camp or a UX camp and or a qualitative camp and a quantitative camp i think if you can blend those two you can get really really powerful insights and form a much more informed data driven hypothesis and an interesting example this is a real life client that i worked with um, they came to me and said, Deborah, our site is not converting well, help us. I looked at the heat mapping data and what I saw is people just weren't clicking on, it was a landing page and the call to action was a free trial. People were not clicking on any of the free trial buttons. And I said, okay, well, I think we need to redesign the page here, bring out the value proposition of the copy. The heat mapping data indicated people were not scrolling, engagement was low. And we redesigned the site and the client said, well, things still aren't converting as well as we wanted. What's going on here? And the answer was, I don't know. I've applied all the best practices that I possibly can. Let's now use a customer exit poll and Mm. find out from customers why they're not converting. Yeah. That probably should have been done <laughs> first. <laughs> Hindsight's easier, right? Yeah. It's 100%. But, you know, at least we are able to now combine the heat mapping insights with mm. zero best practices and now exit poll technologies. And, and what we found out is people just didn't feel ready to start a free trial. It was yeah. too high stakes for them. Even though it was a free trial, people just didn't feel ready to take that step yet. So there was more kind of nurturing that needed to be done and more reassurance that needed to be done before people were ready to convert. And so that was really valuable. And that's something that analytics data didn't tell us, heat mapping didn't tell us. It wasn't until we actually spoke with the customer and found out from them what's going on that we were able Mm. to then apply all those insights together and kind of crack the code. And then from there, conversion rates, you know, that's awesome. So I think the lesson uh, here is um, don't just rely on purely quant or qualitative data only. We've got to kind of merge the two. And and different pieces of the data can tell you different stories. Another really interesting example, and this is a real-life test that's featured on Guess the Test. Mm. It was submitted by McClatchy Media, which is a a large media company. They started off, they said, okay, we run a lot of classified ads, um, paid ads in newspapers, 
But classified just seems like such an antiquated word. People don't mm. really use classified, classified anymore. Yeah. Maybe we should change it to buy and sell. Maybe that mm. will be more meaningful for people. And so they started off doing user experience testing and they said, which would you prefer? Which would you navigate to on the website? And they asked people, a large sample of people, and they said, does buy and sell mean more to you or does classified mean more to you? And user experience testing revealed that buy and sell was actually the better way to go. Yeah. So the company said, okay, great. We have that user experience point of view. We also know that users say one thing and act another way. Yep. Let's now A-B test this and actually mm. validate this insight with A-B testing. Mm. And when they ran the A-B test, what they found was actually the exact opposite. Mm. Classified converted much better because that's what people are used to in a newspaper yep. context. And so it was only one single word that they changed in this case in their top nav. They mm. changed it from buy and sell to classified and classified I'd have to look at exactly what the conversion rate was, but converted much better at a statistically significant effect. So you can do different methodologies and they don't yeah. always add up. The choice then is, is the A-B test right? Or is the <laughs> user experience test right? Um, mm. I'm going to say go with the quantitative data, go with the A-B test, because as long as it's run properly and you've yep. done statistically significant results, with a large data point like that, the data probably is going to be more accurate. But it shows the importance of blending modalities. If you just go with one single modality, you have mm. a sort of myopic perspective and you're not necessarily going to be tuning in to the broad swath of your users. You're just going to be getting a small sample who say, potentially say one thing and act another way. Um, just uh, and just, just leading back to uh, heat maps, um, you know, how, how do they... Um, help us to develop qualitative data um, to help guide our hypotheses uh, in, in line with um, quant data? And this is sure. probably a good, good question for beginners. Yeah. yeah, so for me, heat maps are absolutely essential. Mm. I will not audit a client's site without heat mapping data. So anytime yeah. I talk with a client, I say, you probably already have analytics data. Most people have Google Analytics installed. Before I start working with you, we need to install heat mapping. And yeah. nobody has an excuse anymore because with Microsoft Clarity, it's free. Yeah. Um, Hotjar is not too expensive. Lucky Orange is pretty minimal in terms of cost. And then there's other options like Crazy Egg and yeah. a whole bunch of heat mapping options. So that that's step number one. Mm -hmm. From there... I have a kind of data-driven process that I've developed over time, but to answer your question most specifically, I use the heat mapping data to look both at desktop and mobile. Yeah. I look at heat mapping, scroll mapping, session replays, and I use it to paint a picture of how users are behaving on their site. In particular, what they're clicking or what they're not clicking. I think yeah. what they're not clicking is just as important. Mm. And looking at top nav engagement with that, looking at key CTAs, looking at are people clicking through reviews or scrolling through reviews? Are they engaging? Um, are they clicking videos or not? Are they getting far down the page or not? And over and over again, through analyzing at this point hundreds of sites, I've seen very specific trends. For the most part, the hero section, the top section of the website before it's, the user has to scroll down, yep. the above the fold section, 
most users do not go beyond the hero section on a homepage. So the hero section is absolutely your prime piece of real estate to yeah. capture the user. And as a result, the message has to be salient. It has to be very clear. It has to be compelling. It has to contain your value proposition. It has to explain what your product or service is. And it has to have benefit. And mm. that's an awful lot to pack into a hero section. Yeah, it but is. most companies do not do it very well. They assume that users know what the product or service is and they offer no background whatsoever on what the product or service is. And they have some cutesy phrase like, you know, whatever it is that doesn't mean anything to the user. And then they expect the user to convert and wonder why conversions are low. <laughs> um, yeah. So social proof is key in that section. Yep. You absolutely need to infuse a sense of credibility into the hero section so that when the user lands on the site, they feel like this is a product or service that can be trusted. Yep. A very clear value proposition and a clear, strong call to action button are. You're, you're, you're quite adamant about putting a CTA button on uh, the above the fold region I, I've for most seen websites? Different evidence. Mm. So I've, I've, anecdotally seen people refer to case studies where there is no CTA in yeah. the hero section and they say, Oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's up I've for read debate. Those case studies too. Like was it Neil Patel that said, Oh, you know, maybe if you, it's overrated and they will scroll down and then if they're engaged buyers will scroll down and then hit the CTA, wherever it is. I, yeah. I, I, I can't remember if it was Neil Patel, but it was someone else, but yeah, I've heard that debate. Yeah. It, it's definitely debated. Mm. My theory and my line of thinking is maybe, maybe the user will scroll. If you're yep. one of those few lucky websites where the user does scroll, fine. But if you're like the majority of sites that I see where users aren't scrolling below the fold, mm. then don't waste that precious, precious real estate by not giving a key call to action. Mm. Now, with that, make sure the call to action is the right one because your objective as a website owner might get be to get the person to buy something or sign up for a demo, whatever your key conversion objective is. The user may not be ready at that entry point and that yeah. early funnel stage to take that high friction action. So it may be that you're better served to bring them deeper into the funnel and get them to explore, get them to engage. So exploring the right call to action is paramount, but I think it's absolutely essential you put a CTA button there. Otherwise, there's real estate that is you know, not being utilized properly. Um, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I guess um, to end the debate, I guess you could put several CTAs. <laughs> I, I think that's... Something that's actually under-tested right now is the mm. optimal number of CTAs. Yeah. You see one, that's common. Sometimes you see a CTA and a child link. That's fairly common. You yeah. often do see two CTAs, so a primary CTA and then sort of like a ghost CTA or a secondary CTA. Yeah. But very, very few websites use three CTAs. Mm. And in some of the guest to test case studies that I've seen, three CTAs, when positioned properly and when offering the right choice to the users, actually can perform better than just one or two CTAs. And presumably the reason is because you're giving users the choice 
to find what they're looking for specifically. And so it can be very powerful to do that. Now, choice can be overwhelming and visitors who have too much choice are going to be confused or hesitate and then won't convert. But if you're offering the right choice to bring people deeper into the funnel, it can be a very powerful strategy. So I think that's a really interesting and often underutilized test is what is the optimal number of CTAs as well as what CTAs should we be featuring? Oh, that's a good idea. Um, I'll add it to my testing suite. Um, <laughs> there you go. You know, well, let me know how it goes. V1, V2, V3, and we'll just run them in parallel. And we'll yeah. have like, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, then I've only really thought about testing and, and um, the, the optimal number in that regards. Um, uh, well, just, just in saying that, um, would you say that um, this principle still um, is across B2C and B2B? Um, because, you know, obviously B2B has longer sales cycles, maybe when you get on a, a sales call and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I've been fortunate to work across almost every industry vertical, mm. B2C, um, B2B, D2C, yeah. you know, P2P, if you will, <laughs> yeah. every, every vertical, every sector. I've either worked in it myself or I've seen guests that test case studies in it. And although every industry and every website is indeed different and therefore testing is required, there are certain trends and patterns that persist because people at the end of the day are people yeah. and they want to be exactly they want to mm. be talked to like they're humans and treated mm. like they're humans and we all have the same cognitive biases and we all have the same instincts and that mm. kind of thing and so those very primary and basic principles can be appealed to and we can be persuaded as a result so yes um you need to tune into your audience. You need to know your audience and know what they'll yeah. respond to. And that's where, you know, B2B or B2C or whatever it is comes into mm. play. But trends, I, I have seen it, so I can say this with confidence, trends mm-hmm. persist across sites and across verticals. Any other, any other pointers that... Yeah, so the process that I use that I've developed over time and it works really well with clients is I actually start off by looking at the analytics data. Mm. I get a sense of where the traffic is coming from. I try and form a picture of who the audience is. The exercise I give myself is looking at the analytics data. Can I find even just a stock photo that identifies who the audience is in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, that kind of thing? Um, and I, I take information from, you know, what browser, what device type are people coming from? Are they on iPhones or are they on, you know, back in the day, were they on um, Internet Explorer? <laughs> you know, does, just yep. th- those types of things will give you good clues as to who the audience is. And mm. then from there, what are the most popular pages? Where are people, where is traffic primarily coming to? Where is it exiting? Where is it bouncing? What traffic sources and channels are users coming from how are they interacting on those pages and once i have that formulated in my head and i have a sense of the audience and how they're behaving i go okay now i understand the audience now i understand where they're going on the site let's look at those pages and see what they're doing 
on the site and I'll look at the heat mapping and the scroll mapping data, sometimes mm. the session replays to go, what are they clicking on? What are they not clicking on? How far down the page are they getting? What are they paying attention to? What mm. seems to be important to them? And trends tend to jump out pretty quickly, maybe in part because I'm pretty adept at reading heat mapping data, given my eye tracking background. Yeah. But things just jump out. They go, I can go, okay, that's exactly what's happening here. People are clicking on the products in the nav, but they're not scrolling down to see the products because they're too far down the page, Yeah. for example. Um, or people don't have a good sense of what the product is because in the hero section, it's not well described. So people aren't clicking to shop because they don't know what they're shopping for, mm. you know, those kinds of things. So you still have to have a little bit of conjecture and assumption into what people are doing, but the heat mapping combined with the analytics data starts to create a really good picture of how users are behaving and why they're behaving that way. And then from there, you can start to form a hypothesis. And mm. in the experimentation uh, talk that I gave last year, yep. I talked about what a hypothesis is and the mm -hmm. formula for a smart hypothesis. And a hypothesis is more than just an educated guess. It's a statement that you basically try and validate. Yep. Um, and you really have to identify who you're targeting as well as what conversion objective you're trying to measure out of it. And you really can't run a good A-B test unless you identify those points. Just in regards to that, so you're, um, you're doing the quant data on GA. Are you using it to also prioritize where in the funnel that you're going to be um, doing the potential uh, hypothesis and resulting tests. Yeah. So I look at a few different combinations, but typically I look at the top 10 most viewed pages. Mm. I look at views by actual traffic or sessions on the page. Yeah. Exits, bounces and conversions. So yeah. if you have, for example, a high traffic page with very low conversions, that's an opportunity right there that needs yeah. to be identified. Yeah. Why is traffic high, but nobody's converting on this page? What's yeah. going on? And so then that becomes typically what I'll do for clients is I give them a top 10 recommendations report. So based on the pages that I identify as high priority for, from mm -hmm. a conversion standpoint, here's the top th 10 things you can do to optimize or to test to optimize those pages. And so you look for clues like high traffic but low yep. conversion rate very high exit or bounce rate and um, also high traffic and high converting because if you can nudge the conversion rate even higher on those pages you can bring in more revenue uh, so okay. yeah looking at you know basically if you want to categorize that the kind of most popular pages yeah. or the pages that have the highest conversion value in one sense or another because the opportunity is greatest on those pages. Yeah. Generally, if it's a e-commerce or a Shopify site, most Shopify sites tend to 
you know, be relatively small in that they have the same structure. They have a home page. They have a collection page. They have a PDP page. They have a cart page or a cart drawer. They have a checkout page, which can easily be modified. And then they have a thank you page. And so, you know, it's pretty easy to pinpoint those pages and to start to be like, okay, well, <laughs> we know you only have six pages on your site. Mm. Let's optimize all six of those pages. If it's a large SaaS or B2B site, sometimes they have tens, twenties, 30 pages, it starts to get harder to focus on exactly where you want to start, what you want to optimize, but you can look at traffic and conversions and use that to kind of hone in on where you're going to focus your energy for conversions. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just another thing is um, just for our audiences, uh, com common mistakes that people make uh, when it comes to using these tools. These tools being heat mapping tools. Either oh, heat maps, or... yeah. Common, common mistakes. What are what are the sort of common mistakes that people uh, make? I think one really important thing to look at is number of sessions that the heat mapping tool has recorded, either over time, like over a certain time period, time stamp. Mm. Most heat mapping tools record data and retain data for thirty days, so yeah. you have a thirty day window. But if your traf if your site is low traffic and you only get, let's say, a hundred visitors over those thirty days, mm. well, then you don't have a very large sample on which you're making a lot of assumptions. Yeah. So you might see a certain button being clicked or not clicked an awful lot, but that's only a hundred people, and you know that's not very representative potentially of how people may behave over a longer period of time and how most of your traffic actually behaves. So that's one really important thing to look at and also to report. Like if you're forming a report for a client, I always put the number of sessions and the number of clicks or percentages of clicks over the time period reported because you can really skew things if you've reported over one day versus 30 days, for example. That would be the most important thing. Yeah. Um, Another important factor, as you said, is having that end goal in mind because you can look at the heat mapping data. There's all sorts of bright colors and kind of rainbows. Mm -hmm. It's entertaining to look at from that yeah. perspective. But if you don't know what you're trying to hone in on, then you can get really lost. And so you do really have to have a hypothesis that you're going in with first and use the heat mapping data to validate or to... Um, the opposite of validate, which I guess would be to, this you know, reject the yeah, hypothesis reject. Yeah, that yeah, you have yeah. and say, oh, no, that's actually not what's being indicated here. Mm. Users are doing this instead. Or, yeah, I had a suspicion people were doing that based on my knowledge of the site and based on the analytics data and heat mapping data is indicating mm. exactly that. Bingo. So going in blindly without a preconception I think is dangerous because then you're just kind of going around uh, and looking at lots of pretty colors and pictures, but <laughs> <laughs> you don't really have a metric at which you're kind of trying to chase something down. So that would be the other thing. Mm -hmm. And then I think session replays can be very dangerous because they are so time consuming oh, and you're looking I've at spent hours mind. like just <laughs> it just like it just numbs my mind if I spend like two three hours like looking mm -hmm. at people clicking a I think we forget about that as yeah optimizers and marketers like people are on the metro 
people are at home and they have yeah. kids screaming in the background. They're in the real world, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, they their mouse is going over here and then there's no activity for three minutes. You're like, what's going on? You're supposed to be looking at the site shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and because they're, they had a diaper they had to change in the background or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. So keeping that in mind and not getting too hung up on the session replays. Um, a lot of the tools have it so that you can scrub through the replay at a higher speed. I yeah. think that's very useful to do. But the other tip that I have is a lot of the tools you can tag activities that the user has taken yeah. in the session. And so it's useful to look at, okay, all users who went to the home page and then to the PDP page, but didn't add to cart. And you know, uh, if you yeah. can break it down by those specific behaviors, then you narrow down the number of videos you end up watching and you can start to say, okay, now I see that all these users who performed it didn't perform this action. Maybe not all of them, but a, a large swath of them are doing this instead or not doing this. And now I have a hypothesis and my hypothesis is that, you know, the call to action isn't clear enough or there's not enough trust or whatever yeah. it is. Um, just one more question. And this is, this is a uh, regards to common mistakes. I mean, for me, it's like, um, how do you know that let's just say you see all these dead clicks on these USP icons on this product page or homepage or whatnot. And you think, okay, you develop a hypothesis that, Oh well, if we make, we make those icons clickable to either show a, a pop up with information or go to a URL that um, you know the user would be more engaged and and exit rates would um, decrease on this page. Um, do you think that that could also be a dangerous thing to to, to do as well? Because sort of yeah, know, definitely. So I have a really interesting <clears throat> example in mm. real life. Um, client site they had a page so the the end goal was to get somebody to sign up to get a free consultation and yeah. the free consultation resulted in somebody actually calling you it was for a, a health and beauty um, product and the page where the the sign up was had a number of promotional sales and you know it listed get 50% off this get x percent off this yep. And the icons were not coupons and they were not clickable, but they were formatted from a design perspective to look like they were clickable elements. And so what heat mapping data very clearly showed is people were clicking on them Mm. and you can form a hypothesis from there that Mm. people are clicking on a non-clickable element that Mm. looks like a coupon and likely getting frustrated Mm. the other thing that the heat mapping data showed is many more people were clicking on what appeared to be the coupons as opposed to the actual form where they were supposed to submit their contact info and Mm. get a free consultation and so that heat mapping data was super valuable in indicating okay we need to make this design aspect not look clickable because number one people are probably getting frustrated yeah and secondly and most importantly that interaction or that you know presumed interaction is creating a distraction from what our key 
performance indicator is, which is increasing the number of people clicking to submit for yeah. free consultation. And so I operate with the mindset that people have a limited amount of bandwidth and they're going to engage a limited amount of time yep. on your page. Yep. Don't waste that engagement on elements that don't need to be interactive or look clickable, yep. but are not. Get mm. people to click only on key elements on the page that have meaningful interaction. Mm. And in some cases that may be a testimonial or a testimonial slider and putting it midway down the page and having it be clickable and interactive. So you can go through and look at each testimonial mm. kind of arrow through. Yep. Sometimes that's valuable because it gives the user a break, especially on a long form page yep. to go through and to see what people are paying, are, are <clears> saying. <throat> and, you know, it, creates heightened engagement mm. but if every element on the page is clickable and interactive then by the time they get to your cta you've probably created fatigue <laughs> and people aren't going to want to yeah. click on your cta mm. so limit the number of clickable activities on your page keep them only to key performance indicators or conversion objectives yeah, I guess that's a bit of an art and a science too, isn't it? Because, mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, it does remind me of it. I won't get into details, obviously, but because uh, this is um, for, for the company I work for. But yeah, it does remind me of a test that we ran where it was on a table and they were clicking. Yeah, like they were clicking. I was like, why are they clicking these damn, like, um, why are they clicking on this, the, the, these? elements on this table it's it's not it's it, i'm not sure is it is it high engagement do they want to see what's behind it but yeah one of the comments that um other people raised was like yeah it does actually look like it was clickable because mm. it's there's a bit of shading right. kind of around each cell and you think oh it's like one of those you know like it's a button okay i'll click it so particularly on mobile mm -hmm. i'm guessing they they, they you know particularly right. on, on mobile in particular show that um yeah they, they were clicking like crazy and Obviously, mm. in regards to that, it's probably draining their system too. So when it comes down right. to the CTA, they're like, oh, oh stuff that I can't, I'll forget about it. And then you've lost I'm the customer. I'm done at this point. Yeah, yeah I yeah. guess that's another important point too. Um, you asked about, you know, sort of pitfalls of heat mapping data. Mm. The heat mapping data is, number one, it's not imperfect. And number two, it's not always 100% accurate in terms of where exactly on the page people are clicking. Yep. So especially with mobile where people are tapping in sort of a, a larger section on the page, you can't always pinpoint exactly. So take it with a grain of salt. It will often be off by a few degrees or a, a small margin. Yeah. And uh, if you think, well, why are people clicking, you know, on that part of the page and there's nothing there at all, yeah. then, you know, those types of things can be ignored or sometimes there's, is a, a mark, a heat mark there because people are clicking to scroll down the page or tapping to scroll down the page, even though there's actually nothing on the page at that particular spot. So take it with a grain of salt. It's not absolute truth all the yeah, time. Yeah, very good point. And just to add to that, um, I think, because I've seen taps on mobile where you're like, you know, I, I thought it was a, like an actual user wanted tap, but my colleague was like, maybe they're just scrolling um look it's been good having you on the show uh, we talked a lot about you know your background and um how your degree has led to 
um, yeah, the wonderful world of uh, CRO and, and, and all that. Um, how can people um, contact you, Deborah? Yeah, sure. So I'm quite active on LinkedIn. Yep. So anyone can add me on LinkedIn. It's slash Deborah O'Malley. Mm-hmm. I'm on Experiment Nation. I'm, I'm one of the consultants available on Experiment Nation. So people can yeah. get in touch there. And anyone is welcome to go to Guess the Test, yep. guessthetest.com. Check it out, uh, as well as my consulting site, Convert Experts. Yep. And if anyone wants to contact me by email, Deborah at guessthetest.com is how they would get a hold of me. I'm happy to answer any questions and just be a resource for people. I'm mm. pretty passionate about CRO and A-B testing, so if people have questions, I'm happy to help and you know lend a hand where I can. Awesome. It's uh, It's been good having the show, uh, Deborah. It's, uh, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, thanks for being on the show, and um, yeah, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Okay, well, thanks so much.